The scriptures are rife with encouragement um, to press on and persevere in the days uh, in which believers throughout the centuries have lived, always looking ahead, always understanding that uh, the times in which we live are temporal, but that which we're ultimately walking toward is eternal. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I'll invite you to open your uh, Bible to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. But I'll, uh, I'll kind of, uh, before we get into verse 18, where uh, we would normally start after where we left off last time, I'm actually going to read verse 17, because it really sets up what John continues to say. Uh, in seven, uh, verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2, uh, John reminds his readers, his hearers, that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. Um, there is great encouragement in the knowledge that the day is coming when we will go to see the Lord, we'll go to be with him. The work on earth will be done. Um, um, I think it's in that great song, My Redeemer, you know, um, uh, uh, filling us with your spirit here until the work on earth is done. Well, that time is coming. And, um, and John encourages his readers and believers to know that, to think about that. And again, the scriptures have lots of examples of this kind of thing. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, that um, not to lose heart, but to continue. And, and in due season, you'll uh, ultimately, uh, don't grow weary in doing good, uh, but in due season, uh, if you don't lose heart, you'll ultimately reap that reward which God has. Um, and then, of course, we see um, places like Hebrews 11, where those who pressed on, knowing that what lied ahead was worth enduring what was going on presently. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Therefore, he didn't really connect himself uh, so much to this world, looking ahead to the next. Well, um, John is moving into that kind of a discussion now, as he talks about how the things of this world uh, this world itself and its temptations, its desires and such is ultimately passing away. But whoever does the will of God ultimately abides forever. And with that, he goes on in verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so John here makes the case that there is, um, you know, uh, 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 this understanding that the Antichrist is coming. And then also on top of that, many Antichrists have also come. In other words, it speaks of kind of a spirit of Antichrist that is at work and evident through, uh, through those that ultimately aren't serving God, but are ultimately serving the purposes of the adversary, Satan. And so John here says, look, the day is coming when this world will pass away and we're in the last hour. And therefore, the spirit of Antichrist and even uh, Satan himself are working hard, is working hard right now. Um, and he demonstrates this again by explaining that there are those even among John's own number, those who were followers of Jesus or who purported to be followers of Jesus, who ultimately are not following anymore, but rather they have gone after uh, really the desires of this life, uh, tying their lot into this world and ultimately the ruler of this world, uh, the spirit of the age. Now, of course, when we talk about Antichrist, um, I guess I should probably say, I, you know, uh, obviously it's no surprise that I take a forward-looking view to the Antichrist coming on the scene. The actual person who will be the Antichrist is described in 
uh, in uh, Revelation 13 and on, and ultimately is thrown into the lake of fire with the false prophet, as we see in um, uh, in uh, Revelation 19. Um, now, there are those that hold that John's writings predate 70 AD when the temple was destroyed under Titus Vespasian, and therefore the, the various Caesars uh, and, and Titus and, and all that would constitute the spirit of Antichrist at work, and even the Caesar at the time ultimately maybe being the Antichrist in that. Um, I think, uh, I think there, there is in type uh, a possibility that we could see something about that in, the, uh, in those who were um, uh, present at that time. Uh, certainly those individuals John is referring to who went out from them were present at that time. But I think the larger picture speaks to something beyond 70 AD. Again, yet to be fulfilled, uh, taking a futurist look at um, Revelation, uh, you know, and, and really anything that speaks to the millennium and all of those various elements of eschatology that are yet to happen. But let's focus now just for a moment on these two concepts, Antichrist and then many Antichrists. Uh, Antichrist is not somebody who is sort of a flip side of the coin of the true Christ, but rather a counterfeit. And so therefore, there is this spirit that seeks to counterfeit, uh, really, the uh, the person, activity, message, uh, a false hope, you know, presenting a false hope, whereas Christ offers a true hope in that. Uh, but Jesus himself said this would be part and parcel with the last days. And John here speaks of even the last hour uh, being upon uh, him. Now, we have mentioned previously that when you read the book of Acts, you get to chapter 2, the, um, the day of Pentecost, the, day, the, the last days, ultimately, not the day of the Lord, that takes place at the end of the last days, but the day, the, uh, I'll slip again, the, um, the last days really began in Acts chapter 2, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as prophesied by the prophet Joel. Peter claims that this is that which Joel spoke about in that moment, and he said this defines the beginning of the last days. And so for John to say we're in the last hour makes perfect sense. Peter, again, later on in his own writing, or not later on, but before John's writings, but later in his own life, uh, in his own epistles, would speak about uh, those who would say that the coming of the Lord, where is it? Things are going on just like they've always been. And, and, uh, and Peter would say, look, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Don't, don't think that the day is not coming because from our perspective, a lot of time has gone by. Uh, even in Peter's time. In our time, a couple thousand years have gone by since Peter wrote those words. Um, uh, and so even though a long time has gone by, there is an absolute encouragement to not believe or fall away from the belief that, um, that these things aren't going to happen. Uh, we understand that they will. Um, I don't think the thousand years and a day are intended to be taken as specific periods of time as much as I think that Peter is likely, uh, and I'll probably get myself in trouble with some of y'all with this, but I, I tend to think Peter really is just saying that, you know, with the Lord, time is irrelevant. You know, for us, we look at all this time going by, but from God's perspective, he's outside of time. You know, he uh, is not subject to it. He works in his own time that interjects into our time, but he's not subject to it. And so therefore, from God's perspective, practically no time has gone by. Um, but the idea that these days will come is important for us and instructive for us. John here speaks about the idea of the coming Antichrist, but he also says that that spirit that underlies Antichrist is ultimately at work today. And sadly and tragically, even in the lives of those who had claimed to and purported to have been believers. And John says, look, you know, if they had really been of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they did not remain with us meant that they were never actually of us. 
Now, this is also, by the way, one of those passages that um, that I tend to point to when we talk about people who, um, you know, uh, you know, seem to have radically fallen away from the faith, even to have departed from the faith, like being true believers and not all of a sudden believing anymore and that kind of thing. Um, I don't, I don't know that you can have a true, genuine faith and leave it. Uh, I, the question, really, in my mind, um, yeah, I guess I, I, I mean. I feel like I want to be dogmatic about that because it seems to me that when we look at um, the passages that speak about somebody who comes to faith, there is this ongoing work that ultimately leads and glorif- leads to glorification. As a matter of fact, just um, for a moment, let's turn to Romans chapter eight for just a moment. Um, and we've been here before, but uh, but you know, in a conversation like this, uh, it becomes important for us to to come back and revisit it. Romans chapter 8 says this in regard to those who are believers. Um, Let me uh, jump over here. We're going to go ahead and look at, um, starting in verse uh, 28, the most well-known verse in Romans 8 probably to most of us, um, which is really only part of a discussion that Paul is making. And so it's important for us to recognize that as we quote this passage. It's actually part of a larger picture. Uh, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then later on in the passage, he goes on to speak about nothing being able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so there's a lot of assurance in that concept. In other words, uh, like Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. That is in one sentence essentially what Paul what uh, Paul is saying here in Romans 8. The idea that what God started, he finishes. And so when we talk about those whom John is referring to, he makes the point that, look, if they were actually of us, they would have remained with us. Why? Because that is the process. If somebody is... Uh, comes to faith, they will, even though no believer is going to necessarily be perfect or perfected until we receive our glorified bodies and such yet to come, but a believer remains a believer, even though they may have an ebb and flow, a high tide and a low tide to their faith from time to time. The idea of somebody not uh, falling out of faith where they no longer believe really raises the question as to whether or not they were believers in the first place. And all of that ultimately is summed up here to the power of deception that the spirit of Antichrist ultimately has. Uh, Judas was one of those among even the disciples, Jesus' own inner circle. Of course, Jesus knew about Judas all along, but the rest of the disciples were shocked by this. Uh, They didn't suspect anything of Judas until later. John, when he talks about Judas, is speaking with 60 years of hindsight behind him, roughly. And so, Uh, the power of Satan at work in somebody can be tremendously deceptive. As a matter of fact, doesn't Paul say in, um, well, let's turn to it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. um, uh, Notice what he says here in verse 13. uh, Speaking of those who, again, are being deceptive, and that such men are false apostles, Uh, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 
Now, of course, Jesus himself, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, or started to allude to earlier in Matthew 24, talks about the, the premier, the first thing to be mindful of in the last days and to watch out for is the fact that there will be false Christs. There will be deception and such. And this is an important thing. As a matter of fact, it is so important that Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, warns this young pastor in his teaching and equipping of his, his church, this young pastor, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, uh, through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And he goes on to give description of what some of that may look like, uh, to forbidding to marry and abstaining from certain kinds of foods and those kinds of things. Um, and then later on in the chapter, he goes on to talk about how important it is for Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Why? At the end of the passage, before we get into chapter 5, it says, by doing so, you will save both yourself and your, and your, uh, and your hearers, ultimately from being deceived by these teachers and from false doctrine and such. Uh, demons have doctrines, it says. You know, the express uh, spirit says in the latter times, people will depart the faith and instead embrace doctrines of demons. So it should not surprise us with all of this, and this is just a sampling of the content that goes on to speak in the New Testament of this kind of thing. Here, as John is the last living apostle, he is writing among the last of his works, this in the, the gospel, the three letters, the book of Revelation and that. These are uh, his written contribution to the body of Christ in the years to come, and included in it here in 1 John uh, chapter 2. Later on, we'll also see in chapter 4 and that kind of thing where John is making the point that there is false teaching that is coming. This is the spirit of Antichrist at work, even through those who would claim to be um, uh, followers of Jesus. And so he is, he's writing these things as a warning. But uh, in verse 20, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. By contrast, they were not, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. It is important for us to remember the truth upon which we stand and to be able to distinguish it from the lies that the enemy uses, who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a liar and has always been a liar. And so we need to be able to distinguish and not be ignorant of his devices. Thank you for one of our viewers who uh, shared that passage on one of the comments section recently as well. It's important for us to remember that truth is the foundation for our faith, and we need to stand on it, and we need to call out error. Uh, matter of fact, we'll turn to another passage here. Um, I will be honest with you, I was not planning on turning to so many passages today as we started, but um, it occurs to me that these are important things for us to find, to highlight, to underline, and such. Um, in uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, in Romans, um, uh, in Romans uh 15, verse 4. Uh, Paul says, whatever was written... Uh, oh, hang on, that's not it. Um, I think it's actually Romans 16. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see here. Oh, shoot. See, now, I was not planning on turning these passages. I should have and put a marker here just so I uh, would not forget. But um, I think, it, is it 16, verse 4? No. But uh, where Paul goes on in Romans and talks about how you are to mark those that cause divisions, not according to what you were taught, and avoid them. Okay, 
mark them. In other words, recognize who is being deceptive. Um, there is church discipline. We call these people to account. If they repent, wonderful, and, and, and restore them into fellowship. But if they don't repent but continue down that way, we should recognize that we need to be away from them, to avoid them, rather than endorse them, uh, embrace them, certainly not believe them. Truth uh, is ultimately our foundation. And as soon as we begin to allow the lie to, to infiltrate, it begins to chip away at the foundation of so many. We want to be very, very mindful about that. So that being said, uh, we continue on here. Uh, again, John is saying something we just started to talk about, but who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now he says this is the Antichrist. This is the work of the spirit of Antichrist. It's not the ultimate Antichrist. We see a very clear description in Revelation 13. The world bows down to worship him. The false prophet comes alongside and, and, and drives people toward this worship that he is demanding. Again, we include 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 into that. But the idea of the spirit of Antichrist at work, ultimately Satan himself, is ultimately driving toward this main point, denying Christ. Now let me read the rest of the passage here and then spend a minute on it. Uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, uh, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Uh, this is another reason why John writes the letter. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. I'll come back to that last section there in a moment, then we'll finish the, um, the chapter, actually. But uh, John here goes on to speak again about the idea uh, of the deception that the Antichrist, or the spirit of Antichrist, ultimately Satan behind that, brings. And it is focused very specifically on denying that Jesus is God's anointed one, that he is the Christ. It doesn't matter what cult group you talk to. It doesn't matter what false religion you might be talking to. It doesn't matter what worldview people might engage you uh, from the perspective of. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the person of Christ invariably becomes the focal point and the difference between truth and error in those two beliefs, yours as a Christian and the belief of whatever worldview, religion, uh, cult, whatever it might be outside. The person of Christ ultimately uh, becomes the focal point. As a matter of fact, let me suggest to you that while there is value in talking about myriad other topics from time to time when you engage people about different religious ideas and that, ultimate truth. At the end of the day, you want to make sure that at some point you bring the conversation around to the person of Christ himself, because at the end of the day, uh, I don't mean to beat that expression to death, but at the end of the day, um, the, the most important point that you can begin to address and make clear is the deity of Christ, his finished work on the cross, um, the nature of God as relates to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these ultimate core uh, elements need to become part of the discussion because you might agree on a lot of other things. You might make some headway on some other things, but never come to the most important topic, and that is ultimately the redemption that comes in Christ alone because of who he is. Um, and if you address this, 
all of the other elements start to make sense. They start to come together. They become uh, understood in the context, in the fuller context that the scriptures paint them in, in connection to the person of Christ. And so it is not surprising that Satan would seek to ultimately shoot at that target first and and foremost and primarily, ultimately seeking to destroy uh, the understanding of who Jesus ultimately is and therefore what he has also done. But if you abide in Christ, you will not be in danger of falling to that deception. Uh, Rather, instead, you will be standing in the truth that John has been talking about here. Now, he also goes on uh, to explain something else that's kind of interesting. Uh, Again, he writes these things uh, in order to to, uh, ultimately warn them about those who are trying to deceive them. But he's talked now also about this anointing that believers have uh, so that no one need teach them. Now, this is uh, an interesting idea that, um, um, that we want to make sure we understand. Um, the idea is not that John doesn't put value on teachers. John is teaching them as he says this, right? So clearly there's value in teaching and teachers and being in your churches, listening to your pastors and those kinds of things. But there's also a personal responsibility and ability for a believer to feed him or herself, uh, it is if if you had no pastor, you had no teacher to teach you. If you had, if you were in a circumstance where you had no access uh, to to hearing solid teaching of the word, you could feed yourself from the word, and you have a responsibility to do that as well. Uh, it becomes all of our prerogative and priority uh, and responsibility to take upon ourselves feeding ourselves in the word of God itself. As a matter of fact, God has anointed each of us. To, to varying degrees, to be able to understand and to be able to grow thereby. Not everyone's called to be a teacher necessarily, but every Christian is called to be a healthy, Bible-believing, well-fed, personally uh, well-fed believer. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, I'll use as an example Acts chapter 17, where Paul uh, has just left Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, he's been driven out of uh, Thessalonica. And now he comes to a place called Berea. And as he is sharing from the scriptures to the Bereans, they are checking the scriptures. Uh, These Jews that are in Berea are even more noble than those Jews who are in Thessalonica because they received what Paul said, Acts 17, 11, they received what Paul said with all readiness. In other words, they were hungry to hear it, but they also checked what Paul was teaching them according to the word. They checked it against what God had already said. And therefore, they were testing to make sure that what they were being taught was correct and accurate. Uh, And so even the Apostle Paul was subject to that kind of scrutiny. I should be subject to that kind of scrutiny. Every Bible teacher should be subject to that kind of scrutiny. And every believer should be a student of the Word so that uh, we don't just receive, as is John's whole point, error, deception, and that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, I'm not... (laughs) <laughs> I want to be careful when I say this because I'm not encouraging a flood of this kind of thing. But I do want to encourage uh, uh, you to always go to the Scripture and make sure that what we're teaching, whether it's here, whether it's in your own church, whether it's in your home Bible studies, whatever you're doing, that you check what's being taught against the Word. Not to be argumentative, not to try and trip up the you know the Bible teacher or whatever, but just so that you don't just blindly accept everything that is said but that you understand and you learn and you grow yourself so that when someone teaches you, you understand that you're being fed correctly. Um, Somebody actually did question something I had said earlier in 1 John, 
and uh, and I and and in my response to uh, to this viewer, I commended them for not just giving me a pass. Uh, and and I went ahead and shared my explanation as to why and what I believe the passage meant that she had referred to. I think she I, forgive me if it's a he, but uh, the the viewer had uh, had asked about her. It kind of had pressed me on a little bit. Uh, legitimately, it pressed me on it, and I said, "Good for you for not assuming that I'm above that kind of thing." Uh, and I don't say that to try and be, you know, falsely humble or any of that kind of thing. I believe that it is important and incumbent upon believers to be well-fed personally so that you're not misled. Matter of fact, remember what we read earlier in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul told Timothy that if you give yourself over to the public reading of Scripture and to teaching and such, that you will protect your hearers from false doctrine, from error. In other words, he is, Timothy is to teach his 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 you know those his flock those he's responsible for to be able to discern truth because they have been taught the truth not discern in just some sort of fuzzy sort of sense but hardcore concrete discernment based on the truth of the word of god somebody teaches something untrue you can call it out because you know what the scriptures say so let me encourage that in y'all. Um, I don't, again, I'm not trying to encourage like a flood of all kinds of challenges and that kind of thing. But if I'm teaching you something that's not accurate, you should call me out on it. You should want to question it at least and find out. Nobody's above that kind of thing, least of all me. Um, now, lastly, and as we finish the passage, last couple of verses, and now little children uh, abide in him. Now, John has been using this idea of abiding quite a bit in chapter 2. Matter of fact, even the last uh, few words of the previous uh, verses I was reading, you know that, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught, you abide in him. And now little children again, verse 28, abide in him again, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This comes back to something he's been talking about earlier, the idea that there should be fruit and evidence in a believer's life. That's not legalism. That is the simple, natural byproduct of healthy of a healthy tree. Matter of fact, let's just finish our time together camping out on this idea of abiding. In John chapter 15, um, there's a, an enormous amount of consistency in John's writing during his uh, between his gospel and the three letters. Revelation, of course, is a unique uh, book, but even still, you see hints of John's style and personality uh, in, in, in Revelation. But really, in, in, uh, in the Gospel of John and in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, there's a tremendous amount of consistency in, in the way John writes and records what, what um, both Jesus taught and his own teaching on what Jesus taught. Um, in John chapter 15, this concept of abiding uh, really found its root in chapter uh, in, in Jesus uh, right, uh, speaking to the disciples in the upper room. Uh, in verse one, it says, "I am the true vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch that uh, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, uh, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you." As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. You know, when Jesus says something twice or more, you know it's something you want to pay a lot of attention to. You ought to pay attention to everything. But it's almost like when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, okay, ears up. You know, well, here he's said, abide, uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches twice already. And again, the encouragement to abide in him. Again, verse five, I'm the vine, you're the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, uh, uh, like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And again, he uh, goes on. But the idea here of abiding that we might bear fruit. Um, you know, what is that fruit? Well, John here is sort of giving his own commentary on this concept in chapter 2 of 1 John, when he says, if you know that he is righteous, in other words, if, if Christ is righteous, then those who walk with him, those who claim to be his, should also walk as he walked, as he said earlier. And as he says here, everyone who practices righteousness, just like Jesus is righteous, uh, this is proof and evidence that he is born of him. So practicing righteousness, both in terms of what we think, say, do, this ultimately becomes the fruit that demonstrates that we are walking righteously or walking as he walked. Jesus said in his own teaching that this is the desire of the Father, and this is the means by which we do glorify him, that we bear much fruit. Well, John again is referring to that whole concept here. And so... um, In particular, the fruit he's talking about in this context is walking in righteousness as opposed to those false teachers, those who are seeking to deceive. Why is it important that we bear fruit in this regard? Well, because it demonstrates to the world the difference between truth and falsehood, between God's truth and error, um, between the spirit of Christ himself and the spirit of Antichrist that is pervading in the world. Uh, And so our activities, our actions, our lifestyles, both, again, what we say, what we do, which is rooted in our hearts, right? What we think out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and so forth. As we walk in this way, it provides evidence for the world that that we're his, but that in itself becomes a testimony to the fact that we're his and not someone else's. And that matters, and that makes a difference. We stand in stark contrast to those who are ultimately purveying deception. Um, again, standing on truth, living in truth, allowing that truth of God from the scripture to ultimately permeate our hearts, to captivate our thoughts, to drive and direct and fuel our actions. This is the fruit of one who is tethered to Christ, one who belongs to him. This is the natural outworking of a healthy vine working its way out through through its branches. That's what we are in Christ. So that being said, we finished chapter two just then. Um, And um, we're going to go ahead and go into chapter three the next time we get into 1 John. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have a podcast posted tomorrow uh, because we're going to have our Good Friday service. Uh, And if you uh, are not already part of a fellowship or you're unable to uh, to uh, you know, to get to one or something like that, and you're looking for a live stream to watch where you can sort of join in and uh, and sort of be part of the body at least you know digitally or you know technologically. Um, then I encourage you to, to go to our website at calvarychapelfranklin.com and you'll be able to watch the live stream uh, beginning around five o'clock. I say around because we shoot for five, but it seems like we always start a few minutes late. But that being said, if you go to our website, you can watch the live stream. Again, it's calvarychapelfranklin.com. And then, uh, um, then of course, next week we'll go ahead and, and, uh, and dive back in. So, um, so let me pray. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. 
and how it protects us, how it guides us, how it inspires us to recognize the difference between truth and error and to cling to the truth, to stand on the truth, to walk in the truth. Ultimately, Father, this is what happens in the lives of those who belong to Christ, who are born in him, born again. And so we pray that you'd work these things out in us, Father, so that the world might see and so that we might continue to grow. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and grace toward us. We thank you for the days that are yet to come where we'll see you face to face. And give us the perseverance to press on in our day, not growing weary in doing good, but pressing on, knowing that in the end there is great reward uh, that ultimately awaits when we see you face to face, you being the greatest of all possible rewards. And so we look forward to seeing you. We ask you, Father, just to go before us today and whatever it might hold. We ask you to um, flood our hearts with a deep sense of the finished work of Christ as we look forward this weekend to that finished work, celebrating it, remembering it. Uh, as we move into our Good Friday services, as we uh, remember as Christ invited us to, uh, his broken body, his shed blood. And then on Sunday morning, as we gather to worship and remember uh, the resurrection as well, that, Father, we would just, in our hearts, be flooded with a tremendous and deep sense of gratitude. Undeserving though we are, you graciously have set us free in your Son. So thank you, Father. We love you and praise you and ask you to just continue to bless our times together in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen.